It's episode 169 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Cindy Harrell. Hey, hello, yay, (laughs) glad to be here. So please tell me about the Big Friendly Improv Collective. What is that and what is your involvement? Yeah, no, really good question. So in Edinburgh, in Scotland, there's a group that's put together this Big Friendly Improv Collective. Um, I wasn't one of the, the founders or the people who started it. There's a few others that did that. But what it's really about is creating a space and workshops and facilities for people of all abilities, ages, backgrounds, whatever, to come together and do some improv. Um, it was started by a few people that are from Edinburgh, and then a number of us have gotten involved since then. We organize jams every single month that we do, completely free for everybody to come along. Um, some people, even just uh, last week, some people's first time seeing improv, and then now they're excited to sign up for a intro course, so that's great. Um, we do a lot of different workshops. We have invited teachers. And so it's really about trying to create that space where anybody can come along um, and it's supportive and it's open to whoever. And so one of the things I've been doing for them is hosting jams, but then also um, working on getting invited teachers for workshops. So we have in about two weeks, week and a half, we have the infamous Stuart Moses coming to do two workshops for us in Edinburgh. So that's very exciting. Well, I mean, it's delightful uh, to be invited and also a complete coincidence that you've just brought it up then. So on Thursday, 16th of March, Mm -hmm. I'm running what we're calling Acting Technique for Improv. Yep. And that's inspired by the Michael Chekhov Technique. And this is a workshop that I've already run at the British Improv Project and it went Mm -hmm. down very well. So we're, we're looking at certain aspects of the Chekhov technique. I'm not by any means a Chekhov expert. You won't come away being an expert in this acting technique, but I've done a bit of research and I've looked into a few particular things that I found were very relevant improvisers. One of those is the idea of receiving. And so this is becoming aware of all the potential offers there are when you're performing. So you're getting offers from your scene partner. They may be verbal offers, but they also may be physical offers. But there's also lots of offers from the surroundings you find yourself in, anything that's going on in the room. And just by thinking about these as the with the idea of receiving, you can just really take the pressure off you to create. You don't need to create. You can just be aware of what's happening in your environment and respond to it. And then the corresponding other side of that is radiating. And this is how we use our physicality to express what's going on inside us. And we did a version of this at the British Improv Project, Mm -hmm. where we imagined unconditional positive regard flowing from our hands into a person in the middle of a circle. And it was quite a powerful experience, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be in your uh, workshop last year. And whilst you know improv and acting techniques related it was i think a bigger experience than that so just really being in that space was was nice really nice and i mean i think inevitably when you're away for a weekend or longer doing improv your your boundaries are kind of lowered um but yeah it it turned out to be a much more emotional experience Mm -hmm. than i expected it to be i think i think people I think I think it was good for people to stand in the middle and to be given attention and just to accept attention because mm. I you know we don't get to do that very often in our life so the chances to be seen yeah it was it was a really powerful experience so who knows if it'll be the same when I do it in Edinburgh <laughs> but you know that was certainly the the experience previously mm-hmm. and we're also on the Saturday, the 18th of March, I'm doing a movement class, and that's more inspired by Rudolf Laban, who was a movement theorist, choreographer, and dancer. And we're going to be looking at, thinking about the ways and the default patterns we have when we use our physicality and how we can try moving in a different way. So if, for example, we are going to portray a dentist, we might think about what's the most cliched physicality we could use 
to represent a dentist. And that, that can be a useful shortcut, but it can also be really interesting to choose a different type of physicality. And then we can play a sort of dentists that we've never seen before, because some of the suggestions we get, especially as improvisers, do a lot of improv, we get the same uh, suggestions again and again. And like, how can we make it interesting for ourselves and for, for audiences by choosing a different physicality? So um, I've also run that British Improv Project before, and yeah, so it had a really great reaction. So really excited to running those courses again. Absolutely. And I'm definitely looking forward to the movement one, which I have not done. Um, but just even hearing about it and then reading the description sounds like something that something that's a bit different. Because I think I was just thinking when you were saying dentist that I think statistically from an improv point of view, that's when you say occupation, you're probably likely to get dentists. So, you know, it's how do you how do you look at things different when um, you kind of get the same thing? So really looking forward to doing that one as well. Yes. It's also going to be interesting for me because I've run this in Norwich for Dogface Improv and some of the cliched suggestions that come up again and again seem to be, you know, all around the UK and some of them seem to be quite localised. So I should be looking forward to finding out what the cliches (laughs) that you get in Edinburgh could be and how we go about subverting them. Nice. You said you've been leading jams for the Big Friendly Improv Collective. How do you how do you organize a jam? How do you make sure that runs smoothly? Um, we've been lucky enough to get a free space that's part of the Banshee Labyrinth. It's their cinema room, so basically for film and movies. Um, we try not to make the jams very formal because part of the reason is anybody can come along and they won't feel intimidated by the venue or whatever. So it's literally two of us hosting. Um, we bring a a cup or box or something of some sort that we can put scraps of paper in with people's names and we just kind of jam for two halves first half tends to be um just kind of scenes two person scenes type of thing people who haven't been before you know try and have a chat with them about you know uh if they've done anything before uh, if they would like to do stuff that type of thing always make it open for them to put their name in at any point in time um, so we do that, make sure it runs smoothly. You know, it's really about making sure people feel supported. And sometimes that means calling scene when it needs to be called scene, et cetera, and just setting it up, right, to be an open environment. Everybody's very supportive that goes there. So it's definitely known as this environment where if a scene goes really well, that's great. Everybody applauds. And if a scene doesn't go quite well or it's a bit struggled, then that's fine. And everybody applauds, right? So everybody's able to kind of feel safe, I think, in this space. Um, and then we have a break in the middle. Uh, people can grab drinks because we're s- as part of a bar and then come back. And then in the second half, we tend to do a bit more like montage, the so groups of four or five type of thing. And we've had people who'd never seen it before join in. Last month, I mentioned there was uh, two people there who weren't quite ready to join in, but are definitely looking into doing more improv stuff. And then from there, we can talk about other things going on in improv. Um, there's a lot of different groups who run um different pieces. There's an open improv night that happens every month. Uh, there's a bunch of different workshops and that type of thing. So it's also an opportunity to plug other events and things that are going on and just make people aware of the community. And I think the idea of starting the jams was essentially after lockdown. Some people were very much into doing online improv. Some people very much not. But it's sort of regenerating the community of people coming out to do improv with people. Even those who did improv online, it's just different, right? When you're on a stage in front of people and what that actually feels like. So it's just, it's just normalizing that again, I think. And you get people who are doing their first improv at jams. Yes. I'm always amazed when people, that's their entry to. uh, Yeah. It feels like it's a big step, but I think because of how we've sort of um, advertised it, it's like, come along, watch, maybe you can join in. And so it's, there's very low expectations of the jam, right? People just, you know, some people have never done it before, just it kind of clicks and sometimes they're not quite sure um, what's going on and we help them out. So what we're trying to do is even though it is a jam per se, it's trying to make it kind of the lowest level entry type of thing that people can do. I, I realize with jams, there's always a lot of different levels, right? Of, oh, it's a specific format or a specific with this or focused on this. And this is just about people getting a bit of stage time and trying something out. So, yeah. I suppose it's the experience of 
unconscious incompetence is in that you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> and maybe that's helpful mm -hmm. if you're a complete beginner. Improv is a thing where I learned a bit and then um, I realized I didn't know anything. And I convinced the more I learn now, the more I don't know. So yeah, the idea of never having done it and just jumping in front of people, there's something really nice about that. Yes, yes. The more you, yes, you're right. The more you know, the more you realize that you don't know. And that's mm -hmm. both a brilliant and terrible thing. Totally. Let's, let's, let's take us back in time. How did you get started in improv? It's way back in time. Um, I, yeah, it, it was kind of on a fluke, right? So I moved to the UK in 20, 2009 and um, with work. And in 2011, I had to make a big choice of whether I was going to move back to the US or potentially move to China with work or stay here. So I took a bit of time out, about a month, and I decided to do a bunch of things that I thought would be challenging as a typical introvert. So I went to a place in upstate New York, actually, I went to a couple of retreat places. And one I did trapeze. So the whole idea of, you know, kind of swinging through the air. Um, I wasn't very good at it, but I ended up actually injuring my hand. And I was so excited that I had a trapeze related injury because that was something that, yeah, most people didn't have. <laughs> um, I did uh, sweat lodges, right, where you, you go into a tiny built lodge in the forest and you lay on the floor and try not to die with heat exposure. So yeah, that was, that was interesting. Um, you, and then I did improv, right? Cause what? I was just going to say, you didn't Sorry? get a, you didn't get a sweat lodge related injury. I hope. <laughs> I did not. I did not. Right. Only the chappies one. Um, but one of the other ones, I actually took a week long improv course with the thought that there would be a show at the end. And yeah, it was, it was short form, learning all about it type of thing. I found I really liked it and I didn't expect to because I tend to be quite introverted and I tend to be quite in my head. And I think the woman who taught the class was very good at, it's less about learning improv and it's more about removing barriers to just being present and responding to what's in front of you. And so, yeah, that was my time there. Came back, decided to stay in the UK, um, which I've loved since then. I've been here, what, 13 years now, almost 14 years. And I wondered if there was any improv in Edinburgh. And luckily, there was a group, TBC, that was teaching an um, a intro workshop starting like a couple weeks after and started doing that. So that's been, gosh, 12 years now and never looked back, really. I've always had a bit of improv in my life at, you know, different levels. You you mentioned you mentioned a couple of times being an introvert. How does that affect yes. you and improv? Hmm. I think improv has helped me be less introverted because it helps me get out of my head and just be present in the moment and react to what's there. It's almost like it gives you permission to react to what's there as opposed to thinking through it a lot. The other thing is, there's a lot of introverts in improv. People are always surprised to hear this. They think it's the person who tells the funniest joke and people who are, you know, really good at being in groups. And what I found is there's a mix, obviously, with anything. There's a lot of introverts. And it's been really interesting to be with other people who both want to get on stage or in a forum and do something, kind of like play, like children in an improv sense, but then also don't necessarily want to go to the pub afterwards or have a big party or that type of thing, right? So it's a really, it's a really, I think, interesting group of people that I've kind of found that are similar to myself. Because while I'm introverted, I love, you know, having a good time with friends and hanging out, playing board games and doing these kinds of things. And it's it's that kind of people that, um, that you tend to find. Yes, 100%. I I don't see myself as an introvert. I can be on stage. I can have all the attention, and I love that. I mean, love is a <laughs> more word. How I feel about that—it's amazing. Um, but I, I enjoy being around people. But then I need—I have a certain amount of energy, and when that amount of socialising energy is used up, I then need to retreat and then need to spend time with myself. Mm -hmm. And that time is when I get my. That's where I get my energy. That's where I recharge from. Whereas, you know, extroverts, they get energized by being around people. So mm -hmm. good luck with that. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, totally. Totally get that. So uh, you said that you started uh, short form, which is quite a usual way mm-hmm. you get started improv. When did you start trying long form improv? Hmm. So I think a lot of the Edinburgh scene at that time was really focused on short form and the courses, workshops, we did shows, etc. And I'd heard about this long form thing um, and kind of wondered what it was. So a couple of us found a course uh, with Hoopla in London and we signed up. This was, I don't even know, 2012, 13, so a long time ago. We just drove down to London, which is crazy. I don't know why we thought that was a good idea. So nine hours in a car, right, with three of us. Um, and we ended up, so we didn't know where to stay. So we contacted Steve Rowe, right, because um, he was the one teaching the class at the time. And he said, just come sleep on my sitting room floor, which seemed amazing. Again, astounded by improv people, never met him, just coming for his course, right? And he's giving us space, a nice flat which was this surreal, amazing experience of driving forever, sleeping bags in the car, right? Get out with the other two. So we're all lined up in the sitting room, right? In a row, sleeping. So that was probably my first ever sort of improv retreat, you know, this tiny retreat of three people sleeping in the same room and uh, and going to the workshop. And there's not a lot I remember about it, but I do remember there was one scene where I just kind of relaxed and went with it. And yeah, I remember Steve Rose saying something like, that's it, that's it, you've got it, you're the best mother of the bride there could be. And literally remembered nothing about the scene, but it, it kind of sticks with you, the long form bit around um, creating a world. You know, it's not just a quick thing like is in short form, which typically can be um, games and that type of thing. So it has like a quite a clear start, finish and end. But this was creating a world that didn't exist before and doing that with other people. That was great. That was really great. So it was my first kind of exposure into long form. And then I think after that, a lot more opened up in Edinburgh with guest teachers and invited teachers and just different workshops and that type of thing. And so, yeah, really kind of shifted more from short form to long form. It tends to be what people do. I think, hey, let's start with short form and now we do a bit of long form. We don't go back. But one of the things is um, we did a show in the Edinburgh Friends as a short form group, right? So a bit of crossover. And now now I think it's good to do both. You know, they both kind of have their place and they're both... It, it's like with any art form, there's different types of things you can do within them and they each have, you know, pros and cons and good bits about them. Yes, yes, I 100% agree. And Hoopla have run a short form course for more experienced improvisers Mm. because yes it tends to be what people start with but there's so much that can be learned from doing you know short form games um that you can bring your long form the things Mm -hmm. you've learned into long form into short form and the things you learn in short form you can bring into long form and it's all it's all just improv there's mm-hmm. sometimes I think there's an artificial barrier between the two, but it's all improv and it's just the gaps between when you get a suggestion from the audience that's really different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite short form game that you like to play? <laughs> I'm, it is interesting. Like there's one of the ones that we did um, as part of workshops and a few shows um, was the I'm trying to think of what the what the name like the, the television show or the switch where you're like in a two-person scene and then they talk about rotating left and right and then you're in a different two-person scene and then you come back to the original one and you have to have moved on a little bit I find that quite fun so yes that's got a million names but I was introduced to it as pan left ah okay fair enough and I think that's a really interesting game because there's actually quite a lot more depth and nuance to it than mm-hmm. I realized because I mm-hmm. think I got taught it in – well, I did the Hoopla Beginners course three times. So when I say I got taught it in the Beginners course, we covered <laughs> quite a lot of ground in those, <laughs> those three uh, three courses. But we did it very early, and actually there's a bit more nuance to how you play the scene and then how you return to it later – and mm-hmm. kind of things have moved on. And 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 weirdly, I see now connections to the time dash that you might do in a Harold. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a great game for beginners, but it's also a great game for people that maybe have got a bit more sort of experience. But yeah, no, I love Pan Left. I think that's amazing. Mm. The game, the short form game I keep going back to is Eight Things. I just love naming yeah. Eight Things. Yeah. Although 
it's really interesting because when you talk to people around the UK and beyond, quite often they're number they're they're naming a different number of things. So I've heard five and I've heard seven. Uh, I was always taught eight, but sometimes they're going, what? We're going to name eight things in a row? That's impossible. And I'm like, you're going to be fine. So when you say that, tell me what you mean by your version of that. Because I have two in mind that could be eight things. I have my the eight things, but then I have an, also another that I've heard called number of things. So- right. Yes, you, you're very right to do that. So mine is, we're going to give you a category mm-hmm. and we want you to name eight things in that category and we're all going to count as you do it. And usually the first two or three, you'll be able to name fine. But after that, you'll start pulling things from your unconscious and say, say what you see, say what you feel, whatever comes out, you'll be um, celebrated. And then we are, I, I normally give them one of my favorite ones. To do, my favorite ones is eight things not to do at a party. <laughs> And then, yeah, we count along and then we clap and cheer at the end. I know some people go, those were eight things. Um, that's, that's how I've been to eight things. What's your, what's your variation? Mm. So I have done that as eight things, um, kind of as a warm up game and that type of thing. The other one I've done is, um, you stand in a circle and one person's in the middle and they have to name eight things about themselves. Ooh, that's interesting. So this is, um, obviously much more kind of personal type one it works it works well as well in some corporate settings right where people are getting to know each other because again three or four or five might come very easy like i come from america you know i drive a volkswagen and then you end up saying things that you didn't necessarily realize you were going to say um which is very fascinating i found that a friend of mine was born in south africa and i'd never known that right so yeah so it's things like that that i think just the, the little more vulnerability version of the eight things. I think eight's a good number, though. I think less than eight, you're just thinking. Once you get past four or five, then I think it becomes more kind of subconscious. Your brain's, yeah, has to come from a different place. I love the idea of getting people just to say eight things that are true about themselves. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. So I've also heard that called eight things, but I don't know what you would call it, like... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Everything in improv is named either the same name or completely different names. Like, there'd be no way to make a dictionary for improv just because, yeah, anyway, it's too too difficult. And that's why usually when someone says a game, I'm like, oh, I know what you mean. And I was like, but do I? So it's always good to ask. Yes, uh, it's very interesting when you've got a teacher that maybe comes to your area and says, do you know how to play Hitchhiker? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. well... I might do, but what <laughs> I think Hitchhiker is and what you think Hitchhiker is may be entirely different. So yeah. um, I should explain what Hitchhiker is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should, actually. People listening are going, but wait, Stuart, what is Hitchhiker? So my understanding of Hitchhiker mm-hmm. is you have three seats, two people sitting in the seats. They're just in neutral. They're just driving around. Um, another person comes in. Uh, they choose a physicality to represent an emotion or, or just a really kind of big physicality. They get into the third seat and then they drive off and then everybody mirrors that physicality. Mm-hmm. And then eventually the driver gets out, everyone shuffles along, they go into neutral for a bit and then another person comes in with a different mm-hmm. physicality and then everybody just mirrors that physicality. Is that what you would understand Hitchhiker to be? Yes, except we usually have four chairs and then you still shuffle along, right? So the Hitchhiker is always the new one in, but there'll be yes. three other people sort of um, mimicking the emotion or the physicality or whatever it is that they bring. And then the driver makes an excuse to get out and then everybody shuffles along. So same idea, just a few more people. And I ran that because I'm running a beginner's class at the moment in Reading and I ran that in week two. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful it Mm. was it was beautiful and it was hilarious the audience were really laughing and i'm Mm -hmm. saying look you people in the car wherever you're just copying what everyone else is doing and look at this reaction that you're getting we haven't even used our words yet (laughs) amazing amazing i think that's an amazing learning for beginners improvisers but then also people who have done it for a while that you don't have to do a lot. I think we tend to think you have to do loads or you need to know and you need to think up the next clever thing. And 
that that whole idea of just relaxing and seeing what's happening around you and reacting to that actually goes a long way um, to making things funny. Like it's really hard to not be funny in improv in a way. Yeah, and then and and the, and the smaller you are, and the more delicate you are, the more the mm. audience kind of pays attention and leans in. If someone comes on and they're waving their arms around and they're saying those sorts of stuff, I'm kind of like, okay, I think this is a bit too much. Also, <laughs> yeah. as, if, as an audience member or a scene partner, I don't know which bit to react to. You give me too many offers, and mm -hmm. I've been guilty of that in the past. There was certainly a phase yeah. when I started improv where, first of all, there were too many barriers. You know, I was editing too much, and then I went mm -hmm. through a phase where I was editing too little, and now yeah, I think yeah. I found a sort of a medium between the two. One thing I'm going to do with eight things is mm -hmm. we've done it in a circle, mm -hmm. but um, I'm soon I'm going to do it. So I'm going to get them to play scenes, and I'm going to get them to try and find a way of playing eight things within the scene. Mm, okay, I think will be a super fun thing to do. Absolutely, just as a way of showing them that you know we play these short form games and then we play scenes but actually they're all connected and when you're playing a scene there is often naturally mm -hmm. you know a short form game will naturally just you know evolve and then you get to play that in the scene and it you know it still all works sort i of think yeah i think especially for beginnings learning this idea that there isn't this boundary between short form and long form is really important because then they don't have to unlearn it later right yeah i'm 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 sort of teaching them both at the same time. So they're mm -hmm. doing some of the classic things you would do in a beginner's class, but we're also doing some more sort of actually scenic things. Because when you're playing a short form game, you're playing a scene and you're also you've got a structure yeah. on top of that. So mm -hmm. it feels like a lot to be doing for a beginner. So what I'm trying to do is to get them at least to get used to playing scenes and then mm -hmm. we're gonna add this structure on top. Mm -hmm. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Tell me about the group A to Z. <laughs> yes, Who or what? Yeah. If people are listening to this that know about it, they're probably laughing. So as I would say, A to Z, but no, I've been trained to say A to Z. <laughs> there was a short form group that kind of came about after a workshop that TBC had done because they did all the workshops back in the day. And there was a group of people that had the idea, hey, let's do a fringe show. That would be a good idea. And we had help from some of the people in TBC in terms of how do you apply for one of the free fringe shows with PBH and what does that look like? And I came into it a bit late in the process, like they pretty much already applied and had a group. And it was one of these, hey, anybody that's been in the workshop or anybody else could kind of be a part of this. And it was a really overwhelming feeling to think that we were actually going to do it. Um, we were doing all short form at the time, right? So it was it was a 11 p.m. slot in the back room of a bar, um, about 20 minute walk from the Royal Mile, maybe 15. Um, we didn't tell people that we were flyering, right? We're like, it's just down the hill, just keep walking. And I remember the first night of it, we thought we would get, I don't know, 10 people. And we set up the room sort of cabaret style with tables and stuff. We went out flyering. There's about five of us that night, went out flyering, came back. The room was packed like 40 people when it only should have held probably 30, right? So it was completely ridiculous, overwhelming. The whole stage area, there wasn't a stage, right? It was just a dining room, but the space we had set off to be a stage was like almost nothing at that point, um, just because there were so many people in attendance. And we did the short form games and it was so much fun and people really enjoyed it. Um, and then you're just hooked, right? So we had, I think it was 10 or 11 people. We did a full run, so whatever that is, 20, 20 some nights in Edinburgh had packed nights most of the nights and it was it was one of these things where it was such a magical thing to sort of pull this group of people together i think that so we ended up doing the fringe i think it was five years so i did the first four years and wasn't there for the last year and i think one of the amazing things about it was it was one of the more inclusive because we had a um a place so the place that we were performing was um, accessible so we were chill accessible etc so we were able to have people perform and have people come and attend it 
Edinburgh is quite tough, especially for fringe events um, with the accessibility. So that was great that we were able to do that. We also had different people that we knew through uh, acting groups. And so we had a couple of young performers to the point that they couldn't come into the bar until the show, because I think they were 15 and 16 at the time. So they literally, they could go flyering with us, and then they had to stay outside and peek in the window until the show started. And then they were allowed to come in and they had to leave immediately. So one of the really great things was about it was so many different people performed. It was their first time in a friend show and being able to offer lots of people that opportunity, I think was amazing. I do think, and this is one learning I've had, you know, kind of the idea of working with groups because it was so many people with so many different ideas on what to do and that type of thing. I think within the group, there wasn't that clarity on who was organizing, who was running stuff, who made decisions, that type of thing. I think because I tended to be more of an organizer in general, I ended up organizing, which I'm sure was helpful to some and annoying to others, right? Because improv in general, people don't necessarily like, this is your schedule, you'll be here by then. These are the five guys games that we'll be playing that night. I'll write them on a piece of paper. Because we want to have equal playing time, each of you will play 3.5 games. This was me, which I, I get was completely annoying. Um, so did it for a few years, had a great, great time doing it. Lots and lots of different people were able to come through A to Z. And I think it's just one of these things that we all just sort of moved on from, which is absolutely fine. Um, kind of moved on from and ended up doing different things. So 2016, 17, it kind of disbanded. So it's still, I think as a group in Edinburgh, if you mention it, people sort of think about it as being quite dysfunctional. And I think that's absolutely true. And I also think that it was a group that allowed opportunities to people that might not have necessarily had them. And so that's one thing, being part of that group, I was really proud of. But then also, it's the thing, if you're part of an in-group group, you know that it's really good to have alignment on who's doing what and what's happening and what your group is even, why it even exists and what you're planning to do and that type of thing. So it was a really great experience and then also kind of kind of fizzled out, but nothing better than that feeling. I was actually lucky. My mom was visiting me from the U.S., so she saw my first improv show and with, you know, 40 people packed in, standing at the back, like, just, holy shit, like, <laughs> we could barely stand in front of the stage, you know? So, but no, it was an amazing experience, definitely one I wouldn't trade for anything. That, that is a that is an amazing, uh, yes, yeah, amazing experience to uh, be able to have a, a packed out show for a parent. Um, <laughs> many of us wish we could have had that experience. <laughs> um, or even without a parent. Um, but I, I, I do want to dig into the admin side of things because mm -hmm. I am I'm fascinated by this admin because it needs to happen. It needs to happen because otherwise improv won't happen. Mm -hmm. But it's not always what people want to do so thank you <laughs> i think it's important for things to go well i don't know that if if people tend to do that naturally i would probably tend to do that i think story you're quite organized as well that can be okay but i i can understand with others it seems a bit either limiting or overbearing or overshadowing or that type of thing right so it's just how do you get the balance right i think is is the bigger question around that because I know I can totally be a pain in the butt, 100%. And it's not intentional most of the time. So it's just that question of how do you how do you really balance it? I am very organized, as in I do a lot of preparation. You know, if I'm running a workshop, for example, I do a lot of preparation, I do a lot of reading, and I spend a long lot of time organizing the material that I'm going to share especially into an order that makes sense. The order in which we do things, I think, is very crucial. And the reason I can do that, or the reason I do that, is because then I can relax. Mm -hmm. And then I can do the show. It's the same thing if I was doing an improv show. You do all this stuff so that everything's in place because it's relatively easy to teach, but it's very hard to think and to teach at the same time. It's relatively easy to perform, but if you're also trying to keep other things going at the same time. I want to make sure I have as much space in my head to be either teaching or performing improv as I can. And the price I pay for that is the organization I do beforehand. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Makes tons of sense. What would your top top admin tips be for organizing <laughs> improvisers? <sighs> I mean, I think honestly, it's the communication of, of in what that, um, 
what your common goals are, right? Um, we did a show while well, a smaller group did a show. We did it for the horror festival and it was a welcome to your nightmare. And there was five of us that did it. And we actually were good about, okay, we're going to do these five shows, whatever it was. And this is what it's going to look like. And here's the format. You know, we had the discussion around what it was and what each person's activity was and who's going to take what away. And so that, that actually worked really well and was super fun to do. Um, but it was a finite thing. So it was, we're going to do these five shows. And then we did a couple more at Christmas time. Um, welcome to your Christmas nightmare. And it was just good because we, you know, we kind of knew what each other were going to do. We knew it wasn't going to be a long-term thing, you know. So one of the things I've learned about myself is, do I want to be in an improv group forever? Probably not. It's probably something I'd like to do for a specific event or specific time frame. And then, then go do something else maybe with some other people. Tell me about performing a horror-based improv. <laughs> what was that like? So it, I found it quite freeing, to be honest, because people knew what they were coming for, right? And a lot of times, you know, either somebody would be, I don't know, killed off and come back as a ghost or um, there would just be scary things that would happen, but never scary, never too scary, very much more in a humor sort of a sense. Um, and we did a format, and I'm going to forget the name of it, because they have so many different names. But the format we did was essentially um, kind of standing up, and, and there was five of us right in the group, standing up and talking about like an environment. So almost like an opening scene, but a spoken bit. And then we did a bunch of scenes. So like, you know, a bunch of montage, loosely narrative. And then at the end, we kind of came on as each of the characters we were at the end and tied things up a bit. And I found that super helpful for the audience because then you could say something like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I died, but I am now a ghost haunting this amusement park, you know, for all of time. So it sort of, sort of helps wrap things up for the audience, I think, when sometimes it can be a bit hard to do that with a bit of a montage thing. So, yeah, it was a format that worked really well, worked really well for the horror festival and then the ones we did at Christmas as well. So, and there's something a bit freeing, I think, about being... I don't know, scary, mean. So, yeah, I quite liked it. Tell me more about being scary and mean and how that's true. <laughs> just, I think it's one of these things. One of the things for me about improv is I, because my background tends to be quite analytical, science, engineering focused, data analytics, being in an environment where I can either like play a child character or play, you know, something that's a bit more, um, more scary it's quite freeing because I wouldn't normally do any of that stuff. So I don't know, like going on stage and stabbing someone or, you know, like uh, pushing someone off a building. Sounds horrible, right? Not stuff obviously I would ever do. But just this idea of playing, you know, around with friends, like, oh, I pushed him off the building. Oh, no, now he's back as a ghost and he's tormenting me. You know, it's just like, it's just like things you would maybe do as a child um, that aren't meant to be horrible, but are just silly things that you would do that you wouldn't normally ever do or really think about or talk about. So I found that quite fun. Yes. And having had that conversation about we're going to be playing a horror show mm -hmm. and so these things might happen. Is everyone, yeah. you know, is everyone cool about that? Is everyone enthusiastic about that? Yeah. And, and I suppose being in the audience, you'd know that everyone had signed up for that. Mm -hmm. and so you wouldn't be worrying about people. So, yeah, that sounds a super interesting format. Yeah, it's just setting the expectations up front, which I think is super helpful to, for the audience and for the performers as well. So, And I like the idea. So so, so you, you would tie up the end of the show mm -hmm. by it'd be another spoken mm -hmm. thing and you just kind of say sort of what happened, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Yep. So there'd be like five of us, let's, let's say five monologues, tiny, right? Like a minute each, if even that. 30 seconds each and then depending on who went first then you'd kind of have to figure out your bit in the story to make sure it all kind of wove together and so it was a way because it was the horror festival and not an improv festival it was a way of helping people that aren't used to seeing improv be able to weave stuff together right and not kind of wonder why they're loose ends um, and it helped us as well because we were just kind of working through more long-form narrative stuff and how you type loose ends it just gave us a really easy way a really straightforward way to do that i'm really interested in so when you're giving the ending for your character uh -huh. you also have to listen to what the other people's endings for their characters were 
and kind of work out how it all fits together, that sort of thing. Yeah, and you don't know who's going to speak first, right? So if I were to speak first as a ghost, I might say I haunted this amusement park for all my life. And if somebody was speaking as, I don't know, the police chief, they might say, we've ran out all the ghosts from all the amusement park. And then if I was going after that, I would obviously need to change my story. You know, I had to, oh, move south to a different amusement park, whatever the, the case might be. But yeah, so you'd li- you would have to listen and then um, make it make sense with the story, but then also make it make sense with this ending piece so that people kind of walked out with a view of what had gone. For me, it was a nice way to do, I don't know, like like a nice way to do a narrative without necessarily having to tie up all the loose ends, which is really, really tough to do. Um, that, um, that ending, have you played Crickle Creek? No, I don't know. I'm not familiar. I don't well, know it by that name. Let me say it that way. I realise, I realise the foolish mistake that I made. <laughs> so this is something that I learned from Amy Cook Hodgson, who learned it from Pippa Evans. And you mm-hmm. get four people on stage. And you basically go through, you go around twice, maybe three times. And what happens is you start it by saying, I remember the day I died in Crickle Creek. And you've already got the suggestion from the audience of what that location is. And then, yeah, you must go around three times. And then you tell the story of how you died. Basically, you have a setup in round one, you heighten it in round two. And then in round three, you say how you died. And then based on what people say, how they died before we get to you, you then Mm -hmm. have to adapt Mm -hmm. what it is that you say. Mm-hmm. It's a super fun game, which I had not played before. Hmm. No, it's really good as well to like think through how does your piece fit into the story and then also this the whole thought process around story structure, um, which I use quite a bit in some of the training, corporate training and stuff I do, the idea. It all kind of melts together, but the idea of story structure, right, and what needs to happen and then how things tie up. But I'll figure out what the name of that was and I'll let you know because... Yeah, I don't know that the name's important because we could call it whatever we want, right? We could call it Final Lineup, Monologue Wrap-Up, I don't know, whatever. I mean, there's been some terrible names given to uh, improv games in the past, so those are are quite good names. (laughs) Uh, So you mentioned using improv in the corporate world. Tell me Mm. more about that. So one of the things for me is learning improv, and um, part of that was to be an escape, right, from my real world. But a lot of the concepts you learn in improv, especially when you're come along new to it, is this idea of it's not about making up more and more. It's about being present in the moment and reacting to what's actually happening. And I found a lot of that really helpful in facilitating workshops in the corporate world. Um, and so, yeah, lots of different cases. It's funny because I did a workshop um, in November of last year and it was uh, I was about an hour and a half out of a full day. And the only expectation I got, because the people know me quite well, was we're not doing any improv. (laughs) And I said, okay, then I'll bring scripts and you guys can read from scripts. Because if you're not doing improv, then that's your only other option. So I said, fine, fine, fine. I'll take all the improv out. And then, of course, we did improv, right? It was kind of all that we did. Um, Because I think people see improv as being quite scary. And don't realize it's literally how you're living your life, right? As far as I know, nobody has a script. So this is, this is literally how you live your life. We did a really interesting one with a kind of a word association. So this one, I kind of, we were going to do it in a bigger group, but the room was smaller and there was more people. So it's one of those where on the fly you go, oh man, I need to think of something different to do. So we did it in smaller groups, four or five. And we all started with a word that one person suggested something like bread. And then they went around, you know, the group, okay, bread. And then the next person said a word, maybe toast or toaster or sandwich or whatever it was. And then what we did was at their tables, they kind of went through that a few times, probably two or three minutes. So quite a few finished up. And then we shared what word we ended on. And it was actually really fascinating. I think especially because this is a room full of data engineers, data scientists, uh, that type of people, consultants. To think about, we've started in the same place with the same word. We have the same instruction of what to do with this process. And they ended up in completely different places. So what they would share was, you know, we started with bread and we ended up with International Space Station. Okay, great. How did you get from that to that? What, where did your journey take you? And you would see with some groups, they would take a similar journey and end up at different places. And then some groups were just completely 
different, completely different. And the really interesting thing, so again, having improvised on the spot of this type of thing, was people actually learning quite a bit from this process around, we're starting at the same space. So of course, I spun up that it's like where everybody's looking at the same data set. You're working with the client. Here's all the data the client has. And they want to make sense over what's happening with this. We're all starting with that same space, the client, us, you know, anybody that's working on this project. And from there, you could end up anywhere, right? You could end up with the International Space Station. You could end up with pomegranate, whatever it might be. And it's just, what does that journey look like? And how can we really understand that journey for people getting from point A to point Z, probably? So I found that really fascinating. And again, one just sort of made up on the fly. And afterwards, people were really energized by the activities we did. And of course, we did no improv whatsoever, right? So they were happy about that. Well, we've already, we've already talked about lots of different formats, lots of different um, games. But uh, mm. is there a game or exercise that you can teach me and everybody listening how to play that either you've invented, you've adapted, or that you just really love? There's loads, right? Um, but one of the ones that I had thought of earlier today was Half-Life. I love Half-Life as a game. When we did a short form with A to Z, we did Half-Life pretty much every night. I think it was the last game we did. So the idea behind Half-Life is you have two people have a conversation, usually get a suggestion, maybe they're in a bookshop. Two people have a conversation for one minute. And then those people leave the stage and two other people come on and they have the same conversation, right? Same everything encapsulated, physicality, what they talk about, starting at the same place, ending at the same place, but they do that in 30 seconds. And then you have them leave the stage and either a new pair or the original pair come on and you do the same thing in 15 seconds and then seven seconds, which isn't quite half, but okay. And then three seconds, which is also not half, but okay. And then one second. So the whole idea is you have a one minute conversation and you end up with a one second, which is just going to have to be something really quick that encapsulates this whole conversation. It's a game I really like to do. I've done it with non-improvisers. So when I did some training for a coaching team, um, we did that to try and... Number one, it's fun. It's fun to do. And it's quite funny, right? To see people try and squeeze things together. I've also done it in uh, corporate training. So back in 2017, 2018, um, I developed a course that was a workshop for data scientists and engineers. And a lot of it was around communication skills and storytelling. And one of the things we used to do is we used to do this um, game, didn't call it a game, right? This exercise called Half-Life. And I explained to them what it was that we'd, they'd have a conversation for one minute. And we started it with um, any kind of conversation. So we have two people come up in front of the room. And because it wasn't an improv setup, we agreed who would go after the next person and then, you know, who would copy them. So we had a whole lineup of people that would rotate through. So they had their one minute conversation about coffee or where they were from or whatever. And then the next people went, next people went. We got down to the end and it was one second. First of all, the groups had fun, right? So it's that's a fun game to play, even I would say for scientists and engineers, right? It's, it's a really just good one and it's a bit silly. So then we talked about it. You know, if you talk about how you would like to represent your data and the information that you're doing, you're probably in some cases, not going to get a long time to do it. You need to really think about how you make it succinct. So we played it a few times because people had to think about their strategy. Do they just talk fast? Do they choose different words? Do they leave bits out? Like, how are they going to shorten something by half um, and really get the essence of it? So we, we did that game after lunch one day. And then part of the workshop was about taking actual data sets and charts and calculations and then figuring out how you would... Um, represent this back to the people who had hired you to do the work. So working with clients, essentially. And one of the things we did is refer back to this game of Half-Life, where it was about, here's all the information you have. You need to take that and truncate it down into what's the real key point that you need to get across. So we had them each do as a group, four or five in a group, a five-minute presentation, right? So they had to distill everything down that they thought or whatever into five minutes. So they did their presentations to us as clients. And, um, you know, we asked questions. We ended up doing a bit of role playing, which was kind of improvised, and that worked out really well. But then what we did when while that was done, I came up and I said, great, well, now the board of directors for this company needs someone to come and give them an update on all the work that happened. Um, they need a one minute update for you and you have one minute to prepare. Go. And I'm like, keep in mind this idea of half-life. What was your five minute presentation? How would you truncate it? What would it be? And we use the examples, right? So the, one of the ones half-life, I remember we played earlier, the, the word that came out in the one second was like iceberg. So it becomes this, what's the iceberg moment of this set of data? 
and they had to each get up and prepare and present one minute of information. You could see the panic because, of course, I called them at random, right? So it was a bit of panic. What do I do? I don't know what to do. But the idea of going through that process of really compressing everything to get to the key point, I think really helped them think through. And it was a great thing to do that was also fun. So, yeah, Half-Life's one I've used with quite a few settings, corporate settings, or coaching, people learning coaching, or people learning about data and analytics. That's a great one to think about. How do you get to, how do you collectively get to the point? Um, yeah, make it a bit of fun as well. And tell me about improv with puppets. Oh, I love puppets. So, I went to a, um, so in 20... 17, I was on another journey of what am I doing with my life, right? Six years later. And one of the things I did was I spent a week at Annoyance Theater in Chicago doing a workshop. So I got to train with McNapier and Susan Messing, which is awesome. One of the things I was able to do there, though, was to take a, um, a puppet class. And all we had was it was two ping pong balls with eyes. And I remember mine had a really giant pupil and a really tiny pupil, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, and rubber bands. And we just kind of played along with the old puppet thing. So when I got home, I bought a puppet. And his name's Bo. Um, I don't know where that came from. And started doing a bit of puppet improv. The whole idea of being able to, I don't know, it like heightens the level of interestingness. And if the puppet is a bit, I don't know, a bit weird, a bit off color, it's funny. So did a few shows um, with myself and the puppet, but more he was doing the show. So I did a two-person show um, with Mara Joy Craig and myself, but it was a puppet and her rather than me, right? Like I wasn't in the show. So I did a number of shows like that where there was two-person improv, but I wasn't in the show. It was just the puppet and a, and a friend. That was really enlightening and really interesting because I felt it was a lot easier to do improv because it was distance from myself. So again, it's the sort of thing where I could be observant about what's happening and then the puppet could react. It's kind of hard to explain, but it's this idea of uh, it's a bit more freeing to do it that way. Um, so really, really, really enjoyed that. Obviously didn't do any of that during lockdown, but it's definitely something on my mind to get more back into because it's quite a straightforward way to create more humor um, and just do something that's a bit different. So. so time for the last big two questions. Okay. If someone were to step on stage of you, what could I do to delight you? The thing that comes to mind right away is slow down. I think some of the, the really um, interesting scenes that I've had have been the ones that are quite connected and quite relationship-based, which for me aren't always natural. And so creating a space where we can just be a bit slow and to see how things develop. Um, we've all done improv classes where that's the point, right? And you go slow and you look into each other's eyes and you see what's actually happening. And I find that so empowering and so really delightful. Um, but it doesn't always happen when when you're kind of, oh, I'm in a scene, I need to think of something. Or there was a scene that came before and how do I link with that? And it's just, I think just allowing things to settle a little bit actually would be really delightful and what's your signature move what's the thing you do that saves the day that brings <laughs> down the house that has us going classic cindy <laughs> i think probably what i do the most is there's often times where there can be a bit of a twist or a bit of a word play or some comment made that references back to something else, right? So sometimes when my, my brain works in the right way, it'll figure out something to say that, um, that can get a big laugh. Um, not to the extent of diminishing the scene, but just some, something I've noticed or something that I'm able to bring up uh, that people can actually react to, that type of thing. I think that would be typically me. Fantastic. In which case, all I have left to say is thank you for being a guest on the Improv London podcast. I made this. That's improv! <laughs>